fixture, fixtures are also furniture. I think I've been here for so long that people are just accustomed to seeing me everywhere. And it's a real honor to be here today. The National Council on the U.S.-Arab Relations Board has never been more important than it is today. Our granting your efforts to build bridges between the U.S. and the Arab world has never been more critical. We are incredibly appreciative and grateful for all the efforts you do to make this relationship more prosperous. Colonel McKenzie, congratulations on your appointment as the 14th Commander of Central Command. And welcome back to the Middle East. There is no time, place, or circumstance that is more demanding of your proven judgment, experience, and commitment. You lead a group of men and women who do hard work every single day, delivering on the mission to make the region and the world more secure and more peaceful. Today, that mission is being tested in more ways than ever before. But I want to be absolutely clear that the UAE stands with you and through regular training exercises, encountering terrorism, and maintaining the freedom of navigation. The UAE and the U.S. continue to be true partners. Even as we strengthen defense and military cooperation, the UAE will continue to make to take a leading role as a force for positive change in the region. We will continue to emphasize diplomacy and de-escalation. We will invest in stability across the region and throughout humanitarian and economic assistance. We will promote tolerance and inclusion. We believe that these initiatives are the long-term antidote for many of the chronic problems that the region faces. And working side by side with the United States, we aspire to create a more stable and prosperous Middle East. We envision a future in the region where parents can be confident that their children will see a better future where young people are empowered to pursue opportunity and achieve their ambitions. As we enter what has the potential to be a more pragmatic, productive, and diplomatic era in Middle East history, I personally see better backbone with the U.S. forces at the John McKenzie's command are working tirelessly to achieve the exact same goal. General, you are an unflagging friend of the UAE and of the region, both reassuring and comforting to have you in command of Central Command. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming General Kenneth McKenzie. also a very rewarding life. 
principally in closet and people that you have the opportunity to, to come in contact with and people see it and, and the representative of that fine group of people. And that's why I wanted to keep this uh, I wanted to keep this speaking engagement. I felt it was critical that I keep this speaking engagement so whatever else my schedule evolved into, whatever disaster was inflicted upon me, whatever scheduling I was going to be here today in order to get these remarks. So these are tense and trying times much of the Middle East. Forms like these are important because they provide a valuable opportunity for us to come together, discuss the past and present, and live a quite meaningful, fruitful way forward for us all. I'd like to take just a minute to acknowledge the preceding panel. This one thing to be uh, keenly aware of the challenges and complexities of the U.S. Arab relationship is quite another to expound on them with the depth and appreciable eloquence that the prior panel had. And I appreciate them setting the stage for me. For my part, my remarks today are going to be about the military aspect of our conference, providing stability and security, and the importance of cooperation and deterrence. I'll do my best to be brief, armed with the knowledge that I'm the last person standing between you and a network launch. I want to start my, uh, my remarks by talking about the reality of U.S. military posture, U.S. military posture in the Middle East, and my assessment of the way it went. Many of you are speak in national security issues, and are therefore familiar with the national security strategy and the national defense strategy of the United States. Nearly two years after publication of these documents, however, there remains some debate about what it means for our friends, for our allies, and how these documents manifest themselves on a daily basis across the globe, and in particular in the U.S. Central Command area of responsibility. So in a prior life, I was the J-5, what we call the big J-5, Those two jobs gave me an opportunity to use an old phrase to be present at the creation of both the NSS and the NDS, and I'm going to refer to them in shorthand from now on. So I'm really intimately familiar with those documents, the strategic view they, they, they lay out, and the rationale behind it. Uh, I understand why we're going after the long-term objectives of the NSS and recognize that the NDS, in turn, is a clear-eyed appraisal of the threats that we have uh, face. The acknowledgement of the changing character of warfare and the understanding that future challenges and current challenges for U.S. national interests are trans-regional, not regional. So what, does it, what does it mean when I say clear-eyed appraisal? It means, and this is reflected in the documents I just recognized, we realize that if we didn't begin to make some fundamental changes, we might lack the ability for five to seven years project power when and where needed in order to protect our vital national interests. And by the way, today, nearly two years later, almost every defense expert would agree that that was correct assessment. The NDS acknowledges that over the last two decades, our principal competitors and potential adversaries, Russia and China, have carefully studied us while we've been engaged, while we have been engaged in counterinsurgency combat, principally in the CENTCOM area of responsibility. To be our vulnerabilities. And they have developed capabilities that are designed specifically to disrupt our ability to project power and to operate freely across the region. In effect, they use that opportunity to steal a march, making their investments based on very careful study of us. And during all that time, they have the opportunity to spend precious resources. They have not had the requirements to invest in the way we have. 
and so our weaknesses while we repair our focus on other things. Today, these strategic environments are extraordinarily complex and volatile. Recent events along the Turkey-Syria border only underscore that point. But despite the dynamism in the central region, the threats to our national interest outline in the BBS want to be clear. China and Russia are the primary challenges. The pacers, if you will, with which we must contend, along with North Korea, Iran, Now, you may say, doesn't the region tension with Iran change those priorities? Shouldn't we reach back to deck to focus on? The short answer to that question is no, we should not. But as H.L. Nickens said, there's always a well-known solution to every human problem, neat, plausible, and wrong. In this case, it's better to say no, but global power doesn't have the luxury of a single strategic purpose. In fact, the definition of a global power should infer that it can balance multiple priorities and competing interests. Iran is one of those priorities. It's not the most important. The national security strategy clearly states that the United States must work with partners to neutralize Iran's malign activities in the region. Obama, it's only one aspect of the NSS. It's, it's not a polite suggestion. It's a directive, a directive to the Department of Defense and my command the operational extension plan. But as the CENTCOM commander, I'll be very clear, as I reinforce this point, achieving and maintaining deterrence against Iran is a key task for us. We don't seek war with Iran, but we will not turn away from Iran either. Having said that, adversarial great powers that possess the power and the means to destroy our country remain our top concern. So let me say again, as I just to make sure my initial points are clear, Nothing is as important as our approach to China and to Russia, but we don't have the luxury of focusing solely on those problems. Our planning has to embrace a global perspective. It has to look at challenges from all aspects and enable execution of global, truly global military campaigns. As the director of the Joint Staff and as the J-5, I learned to think about warfare from the surface of the globe. You cannot focus on a region. You must think about resources in We have to manage the force in a manner that allows us to meet day-to-day requirements while maintaining flexibility in the force to respond to major contingencies and to prepare for the unexpected. The key concept, again, is global. I don't think it becomes a surprise to anybody in this room when I say the conflict has changed, the nature of it has changed over the past decade. Any major fight we're going to be involved in is in all likelihood isolated to CENTCOM, UCOM, or Indo-PACOM. It will cut across multiple combatant commands and involve all domains. Air, land, sea, space, cyber. Our global fight against ISIS and other violent extremist organizations is a constant reminder how we need to look beyond the illusion of physical or formal boundaries to address the larger threat. So we have to look at how we posture ourselves globally because we simply don't have sufficient resources to be where we want to be in the right numbers all the time. So I have a renewed appreciation for that. Now that I'm a combatant commander, and I have troops in contact every day. But I also acknowledge and appreciate that you can't make global decisions from the perspective of a single combatant commander. Only the Secretary of Defense can make those decisions. 
as the responsibility of the Secretary of Defense, assisted by his staff and by the Chairman of the Joint Staff, to ensure that we are globally correctly postured and that the globe is set in accordance with our nation's strategic priorities, not just a particular combatant commander. Let me put that into a practical perspective. Back in May, we saw a very credible threat strength emerge against us and our partners and allies in the Central Korean region. I asked for reinforcements. After considering the global implications of reinforcing the Central Korean region, the Secretary approved moving forces in our region. And I believe, as I speak to you today, I believe that has had some effect on the remaining commander's actions. I cite this as an example because, from a practical standpoint, we simply don't have a luxury of armor that has stovepipe ownerships, ownership of our nation's strategic assets. Properly positioned, these assets, particularly those with true global mobility, like aircraft carriers, can provide capabilities for deterrence across multiple adversaries and threats. So, in the NDS, we have a term called dynamic force deployment. This construct sets the globe with the ability to project power wherever needed to safeguard our national interests and those of our allies and partners. Setting that right balance is an extremely, in fact, is an exquisitely difficult task. The Secretary of Defense has to decide where and how he's going to position forces, armed with the best military advice of his staff, the chairman, the joint chiefs, and ultimately the ten combatant commanders of the tournament, all with our national interest firmly in mind. He doesn't have the luxury of a certain strategic environment. Uncertainty plays a large role, and the price of being wrong can be very on a smaller scale, each combatant commander must make similar decisions. Decisions regarding how they allocate the resources provided them by the Secretary to accomplish their own assigned missions. So we sort of transition and go more directly to CENTCOM. CENTCOM challenges and priorities and how we're going to need to posture in order to address the challenges to the Central Korean area of responsibility. First of all, everyone recognizes the strategic importance of CENTCOM in the Central Region to our national four aspects I would propose or argue why we need to remain here and preserve them. First, we must not allow another attack on our homeland. The CENTCOM area of responsibility is the world's epicenter for terrorism and violent extremist organizations. The 9-11 attacks based from Al-Qaeda's safe haven in Afghanistan was our wake-up call that terrorism could be exported from anywhere in the world and touch us directly here. Second, we cannot allow extremist organizations or rogue nations to acquire weapons of mass destruction. Our active presence in this region prevents BDOs from coming together for that purpose and helps prevent the proliferation of weapons of mass destruction material. Third, instability is contagious. It does not respect national borders and grows and spreads if left unchecked. The stable Middle East underpins a stable world. In an already volatile region, our steady commitment to our allies, friends, and partners provides a perfect force for stability. The fourth reason is the reemergence of great power competition. The main challenge being highlighted in the NDS. China and Russia seek to dominate and influence not just their own geographic regions and their own year abroad, but the central region as well. Gives us great power competition, look to influence energy and trade in the Middle East following the First World War. China and Russia are working very hard today to reshuffle the balance of power in the CENTCOM area of responsibility, trying to displace the U.S. and its 
conversation to have about some of the issues. But we understand the adjustments in global force posture may force us to accept greater risk in the central command area of responsibility. We'll need to approach that role and our role with intellectual agility and determination, acknowledging the priorities and our missions are outlined in the NSS and the MDS, knowing that the central command is not going to be and cannot be the main effort of our nation's scarce resources all the time. We recognize the proposition and prepare to work within it. I want to go back just a little bit and talk about the second and third points I made a moment ago about weapons of mass destruction and regional instability. The long-term challenge we face in the Central Command Area is real. This is highlighted in both the National Security Strategy and the National Defense Strategy. The Iranian regime's quest for nuclear weapons, their hegemonic ambitions, their misbehavior, and their threats to us and our partners in the region have been consistent elements of their policy for many years. So as I set my priorities for Central Command, it should come as no surprise that deterring Iran from its destructive and destabilizing activities in the military domain is my top priority. Until such a time as the Iranian regime decides it wants to operate like a responsible state, we must work to establish and reestablish the necessary military deterrence for Iran. Understanding that within the context of the ongoing economic and diplomatic national pressure from Iran. So here's how, to, here's how we do this, and just a little bit of, little bit of history. From the Iranian position, in the absence of any economic or diplomatic leverage to counter the U.S. maximum pressure campaign, sometimes late displaying the Iranian regime made the deliberate choice to push back against the weight of U.S. economic and diplomatic pressure by pursuing potential military options against the United States or our partners. Their calculus probably rested to some degree on the misperception that the drawdown of forces in the theater signaled U.S. was lagging U.S. direction. Of course, nothing could be further from the truth. We can't be responsible for Iranian misinterpretation. The forces we brought into the theater from May until now, coupled with the aggressive use of our reconnaissance assets, have been key to reestablishing the shaking that the region has been under. Reconnaissance assets are important because they shine a light on malign activities. They provide attribution when something happens. Uh, and people who operate in the guard typically don't like the bright light of ISR to be shined upon. And so that's what ISR brings us the capability of doing. So we've been very aggressive in deploying it more honestly. Since, since May, as you all know, we transitioned from periods of tactical warning and some Iranian actual attacks, ship seizures in the Gulf, sustained, sustained attacks from Yemen into Saudi Arabia, and the recent unprecedented cruise vessel of the U.S. attack in Saudi Arabia. I'm also absolutely convinced that had we not improved our force posture and put steady eyes on Iran, the IRGC of proxies would have done something even worse than this, even worse than the attacks that have developed today. Today, we continue to monitor the threat of Iranian-sponsored attacks against our partners and against U.S. forces across the region and assess they're still ready to attack if directed by Iranian leadership. We have given them pause in this regard, and it's an aphorism of defense policy that, you know, it's hard to measure the threats, or correction, pardon me, it's hard to measure the deterrence until it fails. And that's very clear. You can always see it in the rearview mirror that we that our deterrent posture has failed one way or another, and I never want to accomplish it. The great difficulty is establishing a defense posture that you can 
thinking what you can do and how you, what you can do, what you can say, and how you can act to establish a church without being egocentric, aren't you? And that's a challenge, and that's a great challenge that we try to work every day with our friends and partners in the regions that, that we confront them with. In fact, our actions may have only had the effect of driving them to choose courses of action that they would not otherwise have chosen had they naturally sensed. And only time will tell how that works out. As we move forward, we need to recognize that so long as we pursue a national press for campaign against Iran, the military element of power, which I am responsible for from the Secretary, must be able to deter Iran from using its military views to counter our actions in the economic and diplomatic domains. As we adjust our posture to meet these ends, we need to arrive at a solution that is sustainable, that has the ability to deter Iran without provocation, and that's adaptable to future and emerging a new threat to emerge and it will be different than the one we're in today. This is higher level calculus. This is difficult stuff to, to, to figure out. And Jared's theory, as I've already noted, it really isn't an exact science. There are several aspects we need to consider and assumptions that you have to make against your opponent. You may end up making, if you make a lot of assumptions, you can calculate significantly down the road. The extent of deterrence, that is the act of deterring an opponent who is not threatening you in some way directly, is much more challenging. In this case, Iran may doubt our resolve to fight a battle with a pledge to allies or partners, but one that doesn't directly threaten Iran. Achieving deterrence is difficult, it's difficult, and it's costly to maintain. But the cost of maintaining deterrence is almost always less expensive in the long run than the deployment of forces required to fight a post-war conflict. Therefore, the U.S. allies, U.S. and its allies in the region, need to establish the rock-solid perception in the mind of our adversary that we have both the capability and the will to defend our vital mutual national interests. I think a very good progress, a very good in-progress example of this is the International Maritime Security Construct, INSC, or SUTMA, as it's sometimes referred to. We put this together with the United Kingdom, Bahrain, Australia, UAE, and Saudi Arabia, working along with international partners help maintain freedom of navigation and limit attribution to malign actions in vital international waters such as the Bay of Bengal. An important key to this effort is that so much of the physical presence is not so much the physical presence of ships and territory moves, but rather the ISR, the intelligence capability overhead that can attribute malign behavior. So we're not looking to have combat at sea. Rather, we are looking to deter malign activity by the fact that ISR can see that happen and can attribute that, uh, can attribute the cause of that. So that's a very important thing to consider. And that's the way we approach the International Maritime Security Construct and, in fact, Operation Summit. Now, I want to finish on that subject by just talking briefly about the importance of attribution. The Iranian regime has conducted many non-attributable attacks in the past when they didn't think anybody was looking. So the value of additional reconnaissance resources, things that can shine a spotlight on nefarious activities, certainly comes into play here, and we wield that tool very aggressively in concert with our friends and allies in the region. I want to tie everything together and conclude on the point about being good partners and good neighbors. I fully understand that our partners in the region can't choose their neighbors. Saudi Arabia, Iraq, the UAE, Oman, and others stuck with Iran as a neighbor, like it or not. And unfortunately, the Iranian regime is 
free himself to be fully united with him. And we all know the only way to stand up for bully is to do it together. As we and our partners continue to work to provide security and stability, we will acknowledge that we're stronger together. We must keep in mind that our strategic strength has never rested solely on the volume of material we bring to the fight, but rather on the partnerships, the alliances, and the whole of government efforts that no other country and countries in the world can match. Resources will always be a thing. Just as the United States has to foster its military, military globally, working with a common goal, we in CENTCOM are working with our partners to do the same. With the full knowledge that each country, each nation, has its own challenges and economic and social issues that needs to be addressed, we need to look at defense from a regional perspective and do the same on their way. Earlier this week, as I noted at the beginning, I had an opportunity to participate in a conference in Saudi Arabia with Chiefs of Defense or representatives of regional nations. We discussed integrating air and missile defenses, securing freedom of navigation, and other aspects of mutual cooperation, looking at how we would best cooperatively and collectively position assets across the region to provide the best defense capabilities. This is the only practical way to approach the problem. Because everyone can't have their own Patriot battery, just like every U.S. combatant commander can't have their own carrier strike group, much as I would like to have one on a continuous basis. I hope that we will continue to build on these beginnings and work toward building a strong coalition of nations to deter malign actors in the region and perhaps maybe, just maybe, convince the Iranian regime to become a better neighbor or at least to be deterred from malign activities that they have been conducting. On that note, I would like to leave you with a saying from Imam al-Din Abitali that translates roughly in English as, when the people of the right side remain silent in falsehoods, People of the falsehood falsely believe they are wrong. It precedes a later Western thought by Edmund Burke that says, The only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. Thank you very much.